0: Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF.
1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Ahead in this hour, the Colorado Supreme Court's historic decision kicking Trump off the ballot. The new Texas law allowing police to arrest migrants here illegally. Corporate bankruptcies were on the rise in 2023. And federal public defenders take their place at the Supreme Court lectern. On Tuesday, the Colorado Supreme Court made an unprecedented and stunning decision, removing Donald Trump from the state's March 5th primary ballot. The court ruled that Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election results disqualify him from serving as president again under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which bans insurrectionists from holding public office. Trump's rivals for the Republican presidential nomination, like former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, criticized the decision.
2: I do not believe Donald Trump should be prevented for being president of the United States by any court. I think he should be prevented from being president of the United States by the voters of this country.
0: So I want to see this in the hands of the voters. We're going to win this the right way. We're going to do what we need to do. But the last thing we want is judges telling us who can and can't be on the ballot.
1: Trump's campaign immediately said it would appeal the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. Joining me is Harold Krent, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. The text of the 14th Amendment doesn't actually define an insurrection or spell out what it means to engage in insurrection. Yet the court upheld the trial judge's conclusion that the January 6th assault was an insurrection, that Trump engaged in that insurrection. Is that a big jump for the court?
3: I think the jump is more about who gets to make the call as to whether President Trump engaged in insurrection or not. And the definition of insurrection has to be balanced with free speech rights. And the Colorado court, not based upon a hearing, but based largely upon the transcript of the January 6th congressional investigation, held that President Trump's talk went over the line to actually incite imminent violence and not just to speak more generally about the importance of being vigilant and showing your voice. In my view, I think the Colorado Supreme Court had a very persuasive decision on that ground, that there was in fact more than just talk, but rather the talk was inextricably linked with imminent action on that day to stop the electors from certifying Joe Biden as the next president. But the real question in my mind is who makes that call? Is this to be made after a trial? Is this to be made after an evidentiary hearing? And that's the thicket that the Colorado Supreme Court has entered into.
1: Section three doesn't mention the presidency. And the Colorado justices broke from the trial judge on this one key issue, which makes the difference. They reversed her decision that the insurrection ban applies to every office except the presidency. Where do you stand on that?
3: I think that the Colorado Supreme Court was on very strong ground in rejecting the trial court's decision that all other officers of the United States are covered by the Insurrection Clause, except for the president. To be sure, the president is not named explicitly, but the president is an officer in the United States in common parlance. The president does take an oath to uphold the Constitution, like other officers. And indeed, one of the principal reasons for the 14th Amendment was to prevent people like Jefferson Davis, who was the president of Confederacy, from ever being able to hold office again. And under the trial court's reasoning, Jefferson Davis could have run for president. And that just seems to be so far afield from what the framers of the 14th Amendment thought that I think it's on very weak ground. So I think on this particular issue, the Colorado Supreme Court had the far stronger decision.
1: All seven justices were appointed by Democratic governors. It was a four to three ruling. And the three justices who dissented did so on procedural grounds Do the dissents offer a sort of framework for arguments that Trump can make to try to overturn the ruling?
3: The arguments were connected in this sense. The question really focused in different language on whether a challenge to a ballot listing is the proper procedure to determine whether someone engaged in insurrection. Viewed at the most sort of global level, the question is whether Amendment 14 is self-executing. And by that, we mean, can any voter trigger a question as to the qualification under the 14th Amendment? Or rather, does Congress have to set a procedure out in which the question of insurrection and qualification can be measured? So, for instance, in 1870, the Congress did pass an Insurrection Act under which district attorneys of the United States could go to court to challenge the ability of a former Confederate officer to serve a federal office. That was repealed in 1948, and so the question would be whether we have to await another congressional sort of decision as to how to enforce the terms of Amendment 14, Section 3. And that's a very fraught issue, which has obviously never been clearly determined one way or the other, because there is a kind of logic to the sense that we should wait for Congress to tell us how to enforce this provision, as opposed to just individual voters triggering a election board to make this very complicated decision based upon almost no precedence whatsoever. I should also add that Congress does have a criminal provision which provides for disqualification from office as well for aiding insurrection, but that could be pleaded with all the protections of a criminal trial. And Jack Smith, the special counsel, has not charged President Trump under this section rather he's chosen other provisions to charge him with. So we do have a process now, implicitly, in order to determine whether someone's engaged in insurrection and therefore disqualified, but that has not been pursued. And so the major question, I think, lurking under all of this is whether, again, under different formats, whether this Colorado election challenge is the appropriate vehicle for determining whether or not a insurrection indeed took place which would lead to the disqualification of the candidate
1: do you think it's a close call though
3: it's at least odd if not inconsistent with the constitution to say that this incredibly important decision made on an expedited basis without a jury and without many of the safeguards of a criminal trial now if indeed the framers of the amendment thought that that was appropriate, so be it, but you have to have, I think in my mind, pretty clear evidence that that's what the framers had in mind. The other issue that was raised in dissent was one of due process, that this is not a full and fair trial, and the former president did not have those kind of procedural protections before being thrown off the ballot. I don't think that argument's going to hold up at all. I think the real issue is not one of protecting former President Trump, but one of protecting the electorate. And so I think to the extent that the dissenting justice made this point in the case, the real argument is we want to make sure we have a very careful process before we deny the will of the people. And so to the extent that there were concerns about this truncated process, that would go to making sure we have full and adequate protection for the electorate, not for the individual who's seeking office. But altogether, I think it's a very close case, but not because of whether or not President Trump engaged in the insurrection, and there was no dissenting justice on that point. But rather on the question, is this the form? is this the time to make the determination in each of the states as to whether from division and because obviously that's just going to lead to a different result in different states.
1: The Supreme Court, of course, has a conservative supermajority. Is there anything you can conclude from that lineup that tells you about how they'll approach the case?
3: My guess is they won't, touch the question of whether President Trump engaged in insurrection, but rather that they will decide that whatever the proper procedure is to determine whether someone engaged in insurrection, that this process is wanting and therefore cannot stand. But of course, at the same time, they will be forced to make a call as to what the proper process would be and whether or not it's up to Congress to set the guidelines for any kind of inquiry that would be disqualification.
1: The conservatives on the court are textualists. So do you think they'll analyze this by looking at the language of the 14th Amendment?
3: The language in this case is simply not clear. No one can say for certain that the language forces a particular outcome, the court will be grappling with the history of the 14th Amendment that has to be center of any kind of analysis, and we know the issue that the Congress faced was what to do about all of those Confederate officers to make sure they didn't resume positions of authority, and this clause was aimed at preventing that, and the question is how the court can make sense of that without agreeing with the Colorado Supreme Court and I think, again, the way they can try to put those two competing sort of vectors together is by saying, absolutely, that's what Congress intended to the 14th Amendment. But it's failed after repealing the 1870 Insurrection Act of giving another procedure that is adequate to make that inquiry possible. And so if I had a guess now, that's what I would think the U.S. Supreme Court would say
1: the court did decide on Friday not to grant Special Counsel Jack Smith's request to fast-track the question of whether Trump is immune from prosecution in the January 6th case. Thanks so much, Hal. That's Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. Coming up next, Texas's new law is a challenge to federal
4: immigration authority. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Carter Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City, Carter, and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.
2: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Senate Bill 4 is now law in the state of Texas.
1: As record numbers of migrants are crossing the U.S.-Mexico border illegally, Texas has passed a new law that allows police to arrest the migrants and empowers local judges to order them to leave the country.
2: The goal of Senate Bill 4 is to stop the tidal wave of illegal entry into Texas. It creates a criminal offense for illegal entry into Texas from a foreign nation.
1: Governor Greg Abbott signed the bill into law on Monday, setting up a challenge to the federal government's exclusive enforcement of immigration laws. Less than 24 hours later, civil rights groups and Texas's largest border county filed a suit to stop the law from going into effect, calling it unconstitutional. Joining me is immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland & Knight. Leon, tell us about this new Texas law.
2: Well, the law does two things. So the first one, which is not controversial, devotes more money toward border security, and that's permitted in terms of border security, resources for their officers, etc. There is some question about some border barriers that the money is funding to see whether those border barriers are going to be deployed in an unconstitutional manner, but that's one aspect. The more controversial aspect is three new state law offenses that are created By the statute. One is illegal entry from a foreign nation. The second is illegal reentry. And third is refusal to comply with an order to return to the foreign nation.
1: And how would this work on the ground, so to speak?
2: So here's how basically this is going to work Texas will now have the authority to have its officers arrest people that it thinks have illegally crossed from Mexico into the United States. Now, what's interesting is the law doesn't require a visual in order to arrest the person. So it could be that the person was here a week or two, and then this is where that's going to get complicated, is it's almost certain they're going to get some of those wrong if they actually make arrests like that. But let's say they only limit the arrest to people they visually see entering illegally. The next step is those people can be arrested and charged for a misdemeanor, And the way it will work is they will go into a court hearing where the judge will say, look, you don't have to have this criminal conviction, but what you have to agree to do is to go back to Mexico and then we'll just call it even and there won't be any conviction. If the person refuses to do that, then the person will be charged and placed in prison for up to six months under this Texas offense. And then what Texas actually says is if they refuse to comply with a condition that says after this release, they have to go back into Mexico, then they can actually be rearrested and charged with a felony that would put them in prison for up to 20 years. And so this raises a whole bunch of questions, such as what happens if the person's asking for asylum and they just get ensnared in this web in Texas, would they actually have to leave the country and lose their asylum claim, or would they be able to have some sort of way through this without having to potentially face 20 years in prison? And that is pretty much the most egregious, unresolved aspect of the Texas law. But the main complaint is that we have gone through this before, with Arizona doing something very similar, and at the end of the day, the Arizona law being stricken down as being an illegal state law encroachment into federal immigration enforcement.
1: Crossing between ports of entry is already a crime under federal law, isn't it? Aren't federal agents supposed to be arresting migrants for that?
2: Absolutely crossing the border illegally is a criminal offense under federal law. It's a misdemeanor. The problem is the federal government does not have anywhere near the resources it needs to prosecute every single person who did this. We're on pace currently to have something like 3.6 million unlawful border crossings in 2023-2024. And what that would mean is you'd have to have prison space, prison beds, to put those people into custody, and there's nothing like that. So what the federal government does is it only prosecutes people who are either criminals who have reentered the United States or people who are doing some other dangerous thing like drug smuggling or something else while they're crossing the border. But just a simple first-time border crosser very rarely gets prosecuted at the moment for unlawful entry in between the ports of entry.
1: Civil rights organizations sued less than 24 hours after Abbott signed the law. They're challenging the constitutionality of it, and they cite that Supreme Court case in 2012 in Arizona.
2: The ACLU sued in uh, the western district of Texas in Austin, and they are suing on behalf of certain immigrants rights groups and also on behalf of El Paso County, and they're suing the state of Texas public officials saying that at the end of the day, they need injunctive relief from this SB4 in Texas because this is the exact same scenario as Arizona, that a state cannot criminalize being unlawfully present because that is a federal immigration enforcement prerogative and it is not something that the state of texas can do the state of texas is preempted by federal law from doing it
1: if or when this gets to the supreme court how do you think the justices will line up
2: it is expected that there will be three justices you know the liberal three sotomayor jackson and kagan who will be sympathetic to such a claim. And Justice Roberts also voted on the side of the federal government and against Arizona in the Arizona case. There will be two justices, Alito and Thomas, who voted on the side of Arizona during the Arizona case. And so what we do not know is what about the remaining three new ones, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett, are they going to side with the state of Texas and overturn the Arizona case? And say that states can indeed do prosecutions if they're literally prosecuting the exact same thing that the federal government is prosecuting, and not something different. Or will they rule to keep the Arizona precedent and say that this cannot be done, and we're not going to overturn that precedent? And so we will see. There's good arguments on both sides of this. Certainly, the federal government prosecutes drug offenses, as does state government. So both do that. But by the same token, states. Don't prosecute things such as failing to file your federal tax return. That's done only by the federal government. And so we're going to see where along the line does immigration fall.
1: There's also a question about whether Texas can process all these people if they do make arrests, because some border sheriffs have expressed concerns that this would overwhelm the local jails and courts.
2: That's correct. The purpose of this law would not actually be to arrest the border crossers coming into Texas in sort of a massive scale. It would be just to create fear that you could be one of the people that gets stuck in this Texas web and so don't come into Texas. And I think what they would try to do is create enough examples to scare enough people to try to move people out from Texas and into other locations. And that would be their goal. But you're correct to say that if the actual goal was to arrest every person coming into Texas and there wasn't a reduction based off of fear, there was no way they could do it. If Texas would have no way to actually arrest and detain a million people or a million and a half people coming into Texas, but what they could do is if they get enough stories out there of just terrible circumstances faced by people that entered Texas, their ideal scenario would be that people stop entering because they heard of these terrible scenarios.
1: And Governor Abbott is continuing with his busing operation, which has sent more than 80,000 migrants this year to Democratic-led cities. He sent a plane with 120 migrants to Chicago this week. Thanks so much, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, why more federal public defenders are taking the lectern at the Supreme Court. I'm June Grosso,
0: and you're listening to Bloomberg. OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com/techsf.
2: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
5: Mr. Adler Mr. Chief Justice, it may please the court.
3: The 922-G offense is what triggers ACAS penalties.
1: Assistant Federal Public Defender Andrew Adler made his third trip to the U.S. Supreme Court lectern last month, arguing that his client should not be subject to a 15-year mandatory minimum. Adler is one of a handful of Federal Public Defenders who've argued more than once before the justices. With the Supreme Court hearing fewer and fewer cases each term, the criminal defense attorneys face intense pressure from elite law firms to turn over their Supreme Court cases to experienced advocates. Joining me is Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Robinson. Kimberly, tell us about the pressure put on first-time advocates before the court.
6: Well, it's not a secret that whenever a case is granted by the justices, the advocate, if they're not a Supreme Court veteran, will face intense pressure. You know, they'll get calls, emails from large law firms, from SCOTUS veterans, offering to take their case for free to help them out. But the help often means to argue the case. And so it's one way that, you know, as the justices are granting fewer and fewer cases, it's one way for advocates to, you know, show their faces in front of the justices frequently. And it's one that sometimes gets a lot of people to turn over their cases, but the federal defenders have tried to keep their cases when it makes sense within the offices themselves. There's even
1: been criticism from some justices. You wrote about Justice Sonia Sotomayor in 2014, said it was malpractice for any lawyer who thinks this is my one shot before the Supreme Court and I have to take it. Have other justices commented as well?
6: Yes, there was similar criticism from Justice Kagan around the same time where she talked about, uh, you know, the one group consistently who was getting more advocacy in front of the justices were criminal defendants. And that, of course, includes federal public defenders she talked about the same thing of people wanting to have their one shot in front of the Supreme Court. And we've seen a lot of first time advocates, a lot of advocates of these criminal cases who do not do, you know, the best job for their client. But that's not always the case. And again, you know, that's something that the federal defenders are trying to make sure doesn't happen in their cases. And the Supreme Court bar is an elite group. Is it an elitist group too? (laughs) Well, that's what, you know, one of the federal defenders told me is that there is a bit of elitism that goes on this idea that, you know, only certain people can do this. I mean, you know, these federal defenders, they are appellate specialists. They are criminal specialists. They argue in front of a lot of the other courts of appeal. So it's not as if they don't have experience. But one thing that they do often have is a real clear understanding of the criminal law and the way that it happens practically. And we actually saw that in action when a federal defender took the lectern this week and argued a case. He was able to give the justice really a practical, on-the-ground look about, you know, what it is that criminal defense attorneys advise their clients of and what sort of those interactions look like, something that, you know, a Supreme Court veteran, for all the wonderful things they can do, probably couldn't do that. Was that Andrew Adler? That was, yes. And this was actually his third time. Uh, at the Supreme Court lectern. So he's one of the few federal defenders that have gone to the Supreme Court and argued more than once.
1: Yeah. And a few people mentioned that right off the bat, he presented this hypothetical to the justices that really grabbed them.
6: It did. And so, you know, it was in his opening two minutes, the Supreme Court, it doesn't sound like a long time. Um, but the Supreme Court has said they're going to give advocates an uninterrupted two minutes, and it's kind of when the advocates can make their best arguments without getting interrupted. And in that two minutes, he mentioned this specific hypothetical, and it came up again and again and again from the justices. They asked the other attorney about it, Showed he was really making good use of that first two minutes of uninterrupted time. And, you know, ultimately, I think it'll it probably will be the way that the case goes and could end up in the opinion.
1: There are some advocates that have been up there so many times the justices know them and perhaps know them even because, you know, they attend functions with them and things like that. I mean, do you think that's an advantage when the Supreme Court knows who you are? Like, for example, former solicitor generals?
6: You know, it can be. I think one of the things that people tell me is the biggest advantage of, you know, those repeat players at the Supreme Court is that they know what the justices are looking for. They know that, you know, when a justice gives you a hypothetical, you don't fight the hypothetical. You answer Mm -hmm. their question, no matter how ridiculous it is, no matter how much it hurts your argument, and you just sort of do the best you can. And so it's sort of like having a a home field advantage is the way that one advocate put it to me, is that you you just – Know what to expect from them, and know what's going to be the most helpful to them.
1: Tell us about the Defender Supreme Court Resource and Assistance Panel. What is it doing?
6: So this is probably the uh, the worst acronym uh, (laughs) name. It's called DSCRAP, Um, but DSCRAP is really just a group of federal defenders that do have some high court experience. You know, it started out very informally, but after some of the criticism that we talked about, you know, from the justices. Federal defenders from around the country sort of said, "Okay, we need to do something about this. We need to make sure that we aren't, you know, these people who the justices are talking about giving poor advocacy. And so, you know, what they do is to varying degrees, they will reach out to the person whose case got granted. They will help with strategizing a bit. They'll help with brief writing. They'll do moot courts and just sort of give advice to help them alleviate that home field advantage and let them know what it is that the justices expect. And so it's it's sort of like a a homegrown support group. But if Andrew Adler's argument is any indication, it seems to be doing a really good job.
1: You point out something which I hadn't thought about, that it seems often like a David and Goliath situation, because the federal public defenders are almost always facing attorneys from the Solicitor General's office who get a lot of chances
6: to argue. They do. I mean, you know, these are people, you know, there are maybe three or four people who currently argue at the court who have argued more than 100 cases. All of them spent time in the Solicitor General's office because that's the place you go if you want to get a lot of experience with Supreme Court advocacy. You know, they can argue two, three, four cases in a term, each individual attorney in that office, whereas, you know, some advocates who are we consider veterans can go years without having a case before the Supreme Court. So it really is a lot like David Goliath in, in that sense.
1: I know there are a lot of Supreme Court clinics at, at law schools around the country. Do any other clinics offer the same kind of help to federal public defenders?
6: They do. And actually, you know, DSCRAP hooks up with a lot of these clinics. So, you know, the case that we've been talking about, they hooked up with the Supreme Court clinic out in Stanford. A lot of law firms will offer support. Lee Austin, who actually argued the companion case to this case that we're talking about, often, you know, is involved with DSCRAP and federal defenders. So they get a lot of support from the outside as well. And, you know, I think it's really about finding people who are willing to help you out, but not mean help, means take the argument away. So there is that outside help, too.
1: Yeah, I'm going to say that DSCRAP is for scrappy defense lawyers. That's what it stands for. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about the case that Andrew Adler argued in. And the cases involving the Armed Career Criminal Act always seem to be so technical that I often ignore them, (laughs) but they're important. (laughs) Tell us about this one, what the issue was.
6: Sure. So the Armed Career Criminal Act, you know, has some really stiff sentences for people who illegally possess a gun. So think felon or somebody who is convicted of major, you know, drug crimes. And that's actually what's at issue here, is that if you are convicted of three, quote, serious drug crimes, and then you're convicted of illegally possessing a firearm under ACA, there's a fifteen year mandatory minimum. I mean, that's a lot. And so the question here is how do we decide who's eligible for that 15-year minimum? And it's really a temporal question. You know, is the relevant time period that we're trying to see if these crimes are serious? Is it when those crimes were committed? Or is it now today as we're deciding your firearms case? So it is really a technical question.
1: It certainly is. Thanks so much, Kimberly. That's Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Robinson. Coming up, Corporate bankruptcies were on the rise
4: this year. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.
2: What do you think when I say workspace? Cubicles, ugly furniture, bad fluorescent lighting. Exactly. The future of work
6: looks different.
0: We're selling an experience. We need a name. We oui. We live. We dream. We work. It's not often
1: that you have a TV drama series about corporate bankruptcy. But this year there was We Crashed on Apple TV about the rise and fall of WeWork, Painkiller on Netflix about Purdue Pharma and the opioid epidemic, and in the making is an Amazon series about the collapse of FTX. U.S. corporate bankruptcies are at the highest level since 2020. There have been 591 U.S. corporate bankruptcy filings in the first 11 months of the year, according to data from S&P Global Market Intelligence. Joining me is bankruptcy expert Joseph Acosta, a partner at Dorsey & Whitney. So why all these corporate bankruptcies? Is it the end of super low interest rates, the rise of inflation?
5: Well, I think we're realizing the government can't support the economy for that long. We had a lot of government aid after the pandemic, and that has worn out. So companies are now facing less government aid. Individuals are facing less government aid to pump money into the economy. And there's inflationary pressures that cause industries to suffer from just the debt servicing obligations.
1: The past several years have been tumultuous for retailers. In 2020, J.C. Penney, Neiman Marcus, and J. crew all filed for bankruptcy what factors allow some retailers to continue to hang on?
5: Party City is an example. They were able to hang on for a while, but eventually they realized they weren't generating enough revenue. They suffered enough from the pandemic's effects. And to boot, then inflation came up, which made their debt servicing obligations higher. So they survived for a while. But, you know, they all suffered a cost
4: from the pandemic.
5: So there was less demand. If people aren't gathering, Less demands for balloons, less demands for parties, less demands for everything. They were able to hang on for a while, and they're still going to hang on. It's just a matter of they're feeling the effect from the pandemic.
1: Tell us about the WeWork bankruptcy, which was a stunning fall from grace.
5: WeWork expanded too fast, and it was focused more on getting more space and building it out than actually being profitable. So the concept of office shares, you know, it's you take a bigger lease in a building and you chop it up into smaller pieces and offer it to the smaller tenants. Problem is that you're on the hook for the entire lease, and you also have to manage all the subleases and pay the landlord. So it's a lot of work. It's an interesting concept that grew quickly. A lot of it was with the help of venture capital. So it, it wasn't necessarily something that they raised a lot of debt for. It was venture capital. SoftBank supported them for a long time. And they became very popular. I like to say they became like the NTV of offices. They popularized the concept. What happened is they were focused too much on getting locations. You know, they grew up to 700 locations in 34 countries. They spent billions of dollars improving the properties, but they didn't ever worry about bottom line, am I profitable or not? They just wanted to dominate the market and then worry about profitability. Towards the end, They switched gears and started focusing on profitability, but it was too late. They suffered from the traditional pandemic loss of people coming to work and their membership suffered, so they couldn't raise enough revenue to meet their debt service. So they had to restructure.
1: So when you look forward to 2024, do you see sort of the headwinds changing? Do you think bankruptcies will be on the rise or on the decline?
5: That is a million-dollar question, Mm -hmm. but I believe inflation is not going to go down anytime soon. So more companies are going to suffer from the same that people have suffered in 2023, the Ride Aid, the WeWorks, the Party City. You're going to see that in 2024. You're going to see real estate suffering, the trickle effects of the WeWorks coming down, more real estate suffer. As I mentioned before, another real estate investment trust filed bankruptcy two years ago. So malls are suffering because uh, there's still change from regular brick-and-mortar retail to more e-commerce. I would say the trend is going to stay the same. It's going to be an upward trend towards more restructuring, more bankruptcies in the future because of the macroeconomic issues and the microeconomic issues that are facing these companies.
1: Thanks for being on the show. That's Joseph Acosta of Dorsey & Whitney. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show.
0: top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF.